passage this morning is actually Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 24. We're going to spend two weeks in this passage because it's very vital to our Christian walk. It's very vital to Christian living. And I decided to spend two Sundays this morning because of that reason. And this morning, I just want us to walk through verses 17 through 24, verse by verse. But next week, I want to get really into the nitty gritty of what it means to put off or shed the old clothes and put on the new. It's really simple, isn't it? But it's not easy. And I want to talk about why next week, why it's not easy. And so we're going to incorporate next week a passage like Romans chapter 7, where Paul says, I find this principle that evil dwells within me, the one who wants to do good. And we'll incorporate other passages as well. So next week, we're really going to talk about more of a topical about the flesh versus the spirit. We'll also incorporate Galatians chapter 5, which says just that. The flesh opposes the spirit. So even though we as new creatures in Christ want to walk to please the Lord, we've got opposition 24-7. And I want to fill that out for us next Sunday morning. So I really want you to be here because it's really real. There's a genuineness to it. And, and, and I want you to get the picture of this. We're never called to walk the Christian life we're never called to walk in a manner worthy of our Lord alone, by ourselves, but as a community going forward together in our maturity in Christ. The picture of chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, we learned last couple of weeks was that God never intends for us, never desires for us to walk the Christian walk alone. We are not islands in and of ourselves. And one of the means of grace is one another learning one another, understanding each other. We need the compassion, we need the mercy, we need the grace, the love of others. You get the picture there? But right now in chapter 17 through 24, we embark upon a different life. In verses 1 through 16, Paul talked about a unified life, and now he's going to talk about a different life. And that's our topic this morning and next week. And next week again, we're going to talk about the dynamic, the dynamics of putting on and putting off. And we'll talk about it in more detail and the struggles that are involved. But for now, I want us to stand together and read verses 17 through 24 of Ephesians, our passage this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you... In fact, there, in fact, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And now verse 24, and put on a new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, blessed be your name. Blessed be your word. This 
This portion of scripture, like all scripture, is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It, it, it gives us the reality of what is happening in our lives. You call us in this passage to be different. To be new creatures means a new kind of walk, a new kind of life. To be in Christ has implications, it has ramifications. That's what Paul is going to this great length to tell us this truth of sanctification and that it's progressive and that it's real, but it's not easy, though it's simple. So God, I pray this would lead us into further sanctification. That this passage, and, and next week we'll be encouraged in holiness to pursue it, to pursue godliness, and to do whatever it takes on our part for it to become a reality in our lives, and to do it together as a family of believers, as your children adopted. What? The same precious blood of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The outline this morning is quite simple. I actually have four points. And uh, if you notice, the sheet I handed out has two major points and three under the first and two under the second. But I just want you to follow me this morning. It basically is in tune with what I have in the papers in front of you in your outline this morning. But number one is Paul's exhortation, the first part of verse 17. And that's where we begin this morning. Paul exhorts Christians this. I affirm together with the Lord. Uh-oh. Here's the apostle saying, I'm affirming with the Lord. This is the Lord's affirmation. This is what he wants. And I was his apostle, he said, when I'm telling you this, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Now, before I get to the rest of that, the rest of verse 17 and 18 and 19, which describes the unbeliever's walk, I want to park here for a minute and talk about the basis of Paul's exhortation. There's a foundation that has been laid before he gets to this exhortation. And it's important for us always to go back to our foundation before we talk about our walk. It's how do we get this new life which results into a new walk. It begins back in chapter 1. As a matter of fact, chapters 1, 2, and 3, looking at the context, lays the foundation of this exhortation we find in chapter 4, verse 17. In chapter 1, Paul tells us, he begins the letter by saying, you are eternally blessed. So let's not for a minute think about walking the Christian life without first thinking about how blessed we are. Because justification happens before sanctification. And once we get that confused, we get the gospel confused. We get the gospel confused, and we're not going to be saved, are we? So it's very important we understand this. Now, whenever we talk about Christian living, whenever we talk about the Christian life, whenever we talk about our content, our, 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 our behavior and our obedience, it always must be on the foundation of the gospel itself. And that's what Paul does in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. He lays that foundation. For example, in verse 3, I just read it in chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. As we learned months ago, he begins to develop and explain just how blessed we are. So I want you to give a, give a synopsis of this. In chapter 1, God chose you to be holy and blameless. Verse 4, 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in his presence. God saved you so that you could be in his presence and, and, and be holy. How can that happen? Because we're not holy. And that catapults Paul to writing about the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ is he has made us holy by grace. So, so to, to, to leapfrog over that truth, the truth of the gospel, and just talk about Christian living is to totally miss the gospel. It's to be powerless. Because the power to Christian living is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian living is, in essence, living out the gospel each and every day in our lives. Because each and every day of your life, as you want to live to please the Lord, as you want to live in a manner that is pleasing to Him, guess what's going to happen? You're going to mess up. There'll be days you take a step or two backwards. There'll be a day you lost your temper. There's going to be a day you got to fight with your spouse. There's a day you get to fight with your children. There's going to be days where you might have cussed. There'll be days where maybe you fell back in materialism or lusts. There might be a day or two or weeks or months where you've fallen back into pornography or something like that. Beloved, the Christian walk is an everyday daily grind. Now, I'm park right there. I said that for this reason. That's why we not only need to preach the gospel to unbelievers, we preach it to ourselves each and every day. We'll talk about that grind in detail next week, okay? But for right now, let's keep going. Chapter 1, we learn that God chose you to be holy and blameless before Him. He predetermined our adoption. He redeemed you. He has forgiven you. I'm just getting this list out of the first five, six, ten verses of chapter 1. We also learn in verse 13 and 14, He sealed you, He secured you by the Holy Spirit of promise. You have eternal security. He has done all this for you. You get to chapter 2, and God miraculously made you alive unto what He has done in Christ. Look at chapter 2. After telling who we were in verses 1, 2, and 3, we were dead in our sins, but God, verse 4, but God, divine interruption. He interrupted your life. He, in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, showed you the light of the Lord Jesus Christ in your need of Him. The greatest miracle today is the rebirth of a lost soul. Right? It's a divine work. That is God's work. It's not the work of man. Now God chooses and uses the means of men by the preaching of the word, sharing the gospel to do that. But the work is the work of the spirit and the loss of a dead person to make them alive unto Christ so that that dead person will now see Christ for who he truly is and repent of their own good works and rush headlong to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in his life, his righteousness, and his work on the cross. That's what we see in chapter 2. God miraculously made you alive unto Christ, the one in whom and through whom he has blessed you. And then in chapter 3, he placed you in Christ's body. That means this. Right now, you are blessed to be here this morning. Not because of me, not because of you, but because Christ placed us together as a family to encourage each other in our walk with Christ. To be an example to one another. 
not just in successes, but even what to do when we fail. Living a life of confession, living a life of repentance, as well as seeing victories that God brings us in life, okay? To come along one another, aside each other in the pursuit of holiness. Because that's who he is. So you see Paul developing this, this theology, this truths of the gospel in chapter 1, 2, and 3, and all that God has done for us in Christ, and how he has blessed us. And then chapter 4, verse 1, boom, therefore I, the prison Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is what Paul's saying. And the first thing he says in verses 1 through 16 is a unified walk. And now in verse 17, it is a different walk. Here is, in essence, what Paul is saying. When you are in Christ, he wants you to maintain the unity that he has given you as his children, as his followers. Be unified. Work at it. Be diligent in preserving that unity. But while you're doing that, I also want you to have a different kind of walk. And therefore, you put those two things together. You put verses 1 through 24 together. He's saying this, I want you to walk together in unity as you pursue holiness. Leave no man behind. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Leave no man behind. If someone comes with a lifestyle of sin, you go back there and you restore that person to get them back up to the back of the community, right? And they're walking together with us. That is the be- one of the beautiful aspects of God's love, of our love for one another, is that we're there for each other, not because we've got it together, but in those times we don't have it together. You see that? And Paul's going to spell out for us, I'm going to do that more next week, explain why we don't always have it all together. But we'll go on. This is the foundation of Paul's exhortation. How God in Christ blesses sinners and reconciles them to himself. However, the story of God's redeeming love doesn't end there. It continues on. With adoption comes not only eternal life, but new life. You not only have eternal life, you now have have new life. Yes, God loves you the way you are right then. He doesn't say change and then I'll save you. He he, he saves you just the way you are. Come just as you are. But God's love goes beyond that. He loves you so much he does not want you to remain the way you are. And that's what Paul's talking about in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 is God saved you the way you are. 4, 5, and 6, God loves you so much he doesn't want you to remain the way you are. Amen? It's a good little way to separate it, to make that division. Chapters 1, through 3, 4, 5, and 6. In our passage this morning, Paul once again exhorts the believers. And actually, this is like the fifth, excuse me, this is the second of five walking verses. Let me explain. Chapter 4, verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. In our passage this morning. Verse 17, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk, as they walk. In other words, the first time he mentions walk, it's about unity. For our passage this morning, it's about being different. Go to chapter 5, verse 2. Then walk in love. It's a loving walk. Verse 8, walk as children of light. In that context, it is a moral, ethical walk. 
And then in verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. The Christian walk is a wise walk. So God says, I want you to walk in unity. I want you to walk differently. I want you to walk lovingly. I want you to walk morally. And I want you to have a wise walk. And you see that series throughout chapters 4 and 5. And after that, you know what he does? I love this. He says, let's talk about relationships. That's what Paul's going for. That's why he's been talking about marriage. He's talking about parenting and children. He's been talking about work. How the gospel plays out in everyday life. So, so what he's done, he says, we've talked about the gospel. We've laid this foundation. But now I want to show you how it, how it works itself out in shoe leather. Shoe leather. Each other day. You see, what, what, we're, what we're learning now is that Paul's just not interested in Christians knowing the truth, but living the truth. It's very much what James says, be doers of the word, not really hearers only, who are delusional, self-deceived. They don't get it. If all you think it is is to have the right information, and it's all that God wants of his children, then you, you don't get it. You're self-deceived. You're delusional. You don't get it. I like how the Apostle John puts it, and I'm going to turn to 1 John chapter 3. And I'm just going to read this about the different life. He comes at it from a little bit different angle, but he's saying the same thing, but in different words. Listen to this. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. And such we are, present tense. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. And as we are being conformed to Him, the less the world's going to know us. Beloved, now we are children of God. He's not saying, he's not saying, you're not a child once you get to heaven. You start now. You've been adopted. You're redeemed. You're just like now on earth in this body. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Now listen to verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's the Christian life. John's saying the same thing Paul's saying, just using different words. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in Christ sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. The idea is this. The grammar is pointing out, John is saying this, if you just keep on sinning and you don't care about your sin anymore, then you are not in Christ. I don't care what you say. Verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. Uh-oh, here you go. He's worried about people coming and deceiving the church, deceiving, deceiving believers. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Since Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, how can you keep on doing those works without a conscience about them? How can that not bother you if you're in Christ? You see where John's coming from? This whole book is about assurance of salvation, by the way. Look at verse 9 and 10, then I will stop. No one who is born of God, nor who is born again, practices sin keeps on going practicing sin, has this flippant attitude that I can still do whatever I want to do. 
He's saying that doesn't jive with the gospel. Let's not be born again. And he cannot sin because he cannot continue in that sinful lifestyle because he is born of God. We're new creatures. Look at verse 10. Now just, just listen to this if you're not there. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are, in the New American Standard, obvious. John's saying, it's obvious. You look at a person's lifestyle, you look at how they walk, you look at how they live, and there should be a distinction. It is obvious who is a child of the devil and who is a child of God. And he uses the word obvious. It's John saying it's obvious that there is a difference. Which is what Paul's talking about in our passage this morning. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. He gives basically a litmus test that involves two things, practicing righteousness and loving one another. Now, John's not talking perfectionism. He's very realistic. Matter of fact, he starts this letter, his letter out by being very realistic in chapter 1. And he says this in verse 8, If we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, the truth is not in us. So as we're pursuing righteousness, as we're desiring to be pure as he is pure, chapter 3, verse 3, we know we're going to stumble and make mistakes. We're, it's, we're going to be confessing. We're going to be repenting along the way. But in the process, he also includes loving one another. We're not to do this alone. Don't you love, I mean, basically you have these different New Testament writers saying the same thing using different words. They're very repentant. Which means God is saying this, listen, listen, listen. I'm repeating myself through Paul, through John, through James, even through Peter. God says, children, if there's one thing I want you to get straight, it's I want you to begin to walk differently because I made you new creatures. So let's go back to our passage in Ephesians. I just want to show you James, in brief, and John, more in length, how they say the same thing as Paul is in our passage this morning. So after the basis of Paul's exhortation, he reminds them of the old life. I want to briefly go through that. As a matter of fact, Paul's admonition in verse 17 is followed by a series of devastating phrases describing the unbeliever. And they're devastating. It's not pretty at all. Let's look at them. Feudal thinking. The end of verse 17. How did Gentiles, and by the way, Gentiles is synonymous with an unbeliever. So that's what he's saying. An unbeliever lives with futile or vain thinking. Vanity is a characteristic of their mind. One writer wrote this, one commentator, excuse me, wrote this. In losing the concept of a living God, sinners lose the concept of design and purpose and therefore wander aimlessly and hopelessly and recklessly throughout life. Wow. When there's no longer a God consciousness in a society, that society loses all aim and all purpose. The second characteristic is they're darkened in their understanding. As a result of feel thinking, darkness seems to be natural. And Satan helps the sinners in this area because of 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says that Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving. He keeps them blind. Sin blinds them, but Satan comes along and wants to keep them blind. He wants to keep them there so they do not see the glory of Jesus Christ. 
So when God showed you the glory of Jesus Christ, what happened? He pierced through the darkness. He pierced through Satan's blinders, took them away to show you the glory of Christ that you would come to Christ. Isn't that beautiful? You see, salvation is not a physical issue, it's a spiritual issue, isn't it? Primarily. Feudal thinking leads to darkened in their understanding, which means the third one, excluded from the life of God. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of their feudal thinking, their vain thinking. It just simply means alienated. Reminds me of Romans where it says God gave them over. God gives them over to the rebellion. And what does that mean? But then he gives them over to the consequences of rejecting him. So they feel the fury of sin in a greater way. When God backs away, the sinners feel the fury of sin in a more robust, in a greater way. And that's what we experience in a society that turns us back on God. What is one of the number one things in news today? The immorality. I hate to say this, the gropings of politicians that have been going on for years that we've never heard of until recently. It's the debauchery. Right? It's the ramifications of a society that's turned their back on God and they're no longer conscious of a God. We live in an all-moral society where there's no more, well, the moral is this. I define it for myself. That's an all-moral society. That's a postmodern society where I become my own God and I determine for myself what is right and wrong. There is no general standard for all, human, for all humanity, which would be this, right? So we take this out of the picture. There is no longer a standard for all humanity, so now I can go in and determine it for myself. Excluded from the light. God says, okay, that's it. I give you over. You're alienated from me in a way you've never never dreamed or imagined. You reject my creation, my general revelation. You look at the mountains and the seas and the creatures. You look at the law of thermodynamics, the law of gravity. You look at how my created order operates. And all of a sudden you look at what I've done in my design and you come to the conclusion it just happened by chance. That I'm, I don't exist. Then I'm going to let you, I'm gonna, that vain kind of thinking, I'm going to let you suffer the consequences of that. Which leads to the number four, hardness of heart and callousness. Hardness is often referred to in extra-biblical language and literature as petrified wood. It becomes hardened. Callous means without feeling and sensitive. No feeling of shame anymore. There's no feeling of shame. I'm a transgender. I'm proud of it. Because there is no standard anymore, it doesn't matter. I don't have to be ashamed anymore. Right? I don't have to feel guilt. If that's what I determined for myself, that's okay. And you gotta love me just, you know, the way it is. So you gotta accept me the way I am. It means past any feeling of right or wrong. We're past that. Past any feeling of right and wrong or any shame. There's no shame in the face of evil. There's no feeling of pain or sorrow. There's no remorse. That's what he's talking about there. 
And it's because we're given over to sensuality. My sensuousness, loose living. They betray the way God made them. It's reminiscent of Romans chapter 1, 24 through 27. Whereas man abandons the natural function of the man, and he goes for a man instead of a woman, and reverse it. The women abandon their natural function, which would be towards a man, and they abandon that, and they go for women. Homosexuality, lesbianism, transgender, all this stuff, it is in our face 24-7, but it is, what it is, is this, it is a rebellion against Almighty God. It's a rebellion against His created order and His design. They started with vain thinking. If they went to darken in their understanding, God backed off. They became harder, and if God backs off, the sinners become more hardened and more callous to do these things. And they're given over to their own sensuality. They can invent ways to sin. Transgenderism. Even though they can't change the X and Y chromosome. Okay? They can't change the reality. They change themselves on the outside. And then they practice every kind of impurity and greed. They desire for more of more than what is due them. Than what one is due this covetousness. Let's go, let's get away from that. This is so depressing. I told you. <laughs> it was very, very devastating, isn't it? Let me share this on Fox News tonight. See what happens. How about CNN? NBC, CBS. What do you think? You think they'll cut me off in about two seconds? Or anybody, no, it's not about me. These truths. Let's go on. Look at verse 20. But you, you, church, you, my bride, you, my children, you did not learn Christ in this way. What do you mean? When you learn about Christ, you learn about his righteousness, you learn about his holiness. You learned that he died for all these things. Listed in 17, 18, and 19. In him you're forgiven. The verse 20 begins with the word but to contrast. When you first learned about Christ, when you first, the idea is when you first believed in him, you, you, you learned that to follow him was to be different. That's why we include repentance in the gospel message. It's not, I trust in Jesus and I'm going to receive him like, in, like everybody else. No, you repent from trusting in your own righteousness, your own good works. You repent from all those things you've done bad. You want to stop actually doing those things and you want to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. One of the, another way to say this, one of the characteristics of true saving faith is Repentance. God, you're right. I am a sinner. Even the best works I've done are as filthy rags to you. I don't rely on any good I've done whatsoever. No, I don't rely on how good I've been as a boy to my mom. I don't rely on how good I am at work and how a hard worker I am. God, no matter how hard I try, when I pull up my bootstraps, I cannot earn favor in your eyes. Even my best moments, my best works, my best efforts fall short of your glory. And so I'm not trusting him. I'm, I'm throwing him into the wind. Because when I look at Christ, he's true righteousness. He's your standard. He's perfect. 
peaceful. That's the righteousness I need. I want it. God says that embrace my son. Trust him. Trust what he accomplished on the cross. That's the gospel. So when Paul says, you do not learn Christ in this way, he's saying, you're no longer in darkness. You're no longer in vain. You're no longer alienated. The truths of Christ, his righteousness, now begin to dominate your thinking. Right? They begin to saturate you. You begin to renew your mind with the gospel. You are in fellowship with him. When you came to him, you now have new tastes, new desires, a new way of thinking. Your thinking is not the old way anymore. You're not vain in your thinking. This first Corinthians chapter 2 says, you have been given the mind of Christ. Here it is. You want to know what the mind of Christ is? It's right here. This is the mind of Christ. That's why I want to renew this old mind with this word. I want to replace the way I think with the way Jesus thinks. And this is the way to do it. This is why, here's, here's application, daily quiet time. Self-discipline. Right? Right? I can't, I wish I could do this way. It doesn't happen that way. It's not by osmosis. It's by getting the word, learning it, and studying it. It's by having devotions. It's by spending consistent time with the word. It's like a disciple sitting down and listening to Jesus teach back in the day. I love 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Amen. So Paul's saying, you're different. You're not like unbelievers anymore. And the result is inevitable. The next point. Verses 22 through 24. Here's, here's the inevitable result. You will desire a new walk. And that new walk consists of shedding of the old clothes, the old ways. Renewing your mind and then putting on the new Jesus Christ. That is a daily grind. I don't know how else to put it. And during that whole process, you are going to face opposition. As long as you are in this body, you're going to find, as you are going through this process, and I'm, and I'm wrapping up now, we're going to the communion, okay? But I'm getting you prepared for next week. As you do this simple task, of laying aside the old self, verse 22, being renewed in your mind, verse 23, and then put on the new self, verse 24. As you do that, every step of the way, you're going to face opposition. And I'm not talking about from the news media. I'm not talking about from our culture. I'm not talking about from the world or society. You're going to face it within yourself because as long as you're in this body, the flesh is going to fight you the whole way. Look at verse 22. Here's what I'm saying. Is what the text says. The old self, which is being corrupted. Which is ongoing still. Did you know that your flesh continues to be corrupted? Your old flesh is maturing. I want to talk next Sunday about how to starve your flesh. You get me? You got to starve it because it's hungry. And you've got to cut off the avenues that will feed it and appeal to it. And that's one of the ways in which we put off the old is by starving it in order to put on Christ and his likeness. 
So, as one who has new life in Christ, stop living according to your old ways and start living according to Christ. Next week, we're going to talk about how it doesn't happen without a fight. But for now, this morning, i got a question to ask. Do you have this desire in you? If you do not, you have every right to question your salvation. And you should. I could not be more serious than this moment right now. Not just with you, but with me. Do you have this desire? Does this desire characterize your heart? Is your passion to be more like Christ? Do you think about being like Christ throughout the week? Here's what I want to ask. Is the only time you think about being like Jesus is when someone on the outside prompts you to think that? Or do you think that because of the presence of the Spirit in your life, regardless of what's going on around you? Does that make sense? Am I communicating it? Are, are you motivated from within or only from without? It's a both end I need or. Sometimes I'm weak within, and I need your encouragement, right? I need a wise encouragement. I need your encouragement to continue on a persevering Christ. But if, that's, if I'm only getting it from outside, and I'm never getting it from within, I've got to stop and say, does the Holy Spirit reside in me? Am I saved? Because we are called as new creatures to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we've been called. And that means walk differently, verse 17. We're on your mind somewhere else all the time. You see, where your mind is, that's where your heart's going to be. And where your mind is, could be reflected by all the words that come out of your mouth. What are the words that come out of your mouth? Are your words encouraging others to be close to Jesus, to follow Him? Are your words seasoned with grace? Are they, are they loving? Because the words that come out of your mouth will show what's on your mind, and what's on your mind will show what's on your heart. Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to follow Him? Do you desire to walk in a manner worthy of the one who saved you? If the answer is yes, and our hope and prayer for every soul in this room is yes, then I have this encouragement. Let's come to this table together and have communion. If it is no, I have no clue. I'm assuming it's yes for everybody. But I also assume I might be wrong. I don't know you the way God knows you, so I leave that as a possibility, right? As a shepherd, I've got to. I'd be foolish not to. If the answer is no, before you come to the table, you must come to Christ first. Don't leapfrog over the gospel to get to communion. That is just a tradition. And you're still just as lost. Communion does not save you. Christ saves you. Communion is a blessing for the believer. As we do it together as a family. And we show with communion that we're trusting in the death of Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we're celebrating the death of Christ because his death means my life, our life, your life. Amen? So that's what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And finally, still in that day, as we prepare our hearts now for communion in chapter 11, let me read these few verses. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, here's an application. Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. What is an unworthy manner? If you never think about Christ, 
if you never think about glorifying him, if you're never involved in pursuing holiness because of Christ, right? And if you don't want to be pure as he is pure, and you're going to take communion that's taking it in an unholy way. I mean, not, yeah, in an unworthy way, excuse me. And therefore shall be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. Don't want to be guilty of it. Look at the next verse, 28. But a man, therefore a woman, must examine himself or herself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Never come to the table without self-examination, Paul said. And so that's what we do. And when you do a self-examination, you're not going to find perfection. What I'm asking is, do you find desire? Is it in your heart to follow Christ? Have you confessed sin this week? Let's back up. You've lived the whole week now since last Sunday. Have you sinned at all this week? Have you confessed it? If it's against somebody else, have you gone to them and got it right? Could be a husband wife, could be a father-daughter, could be whatever the relationship. See, see, God's saying, I want you to be real when you come to my table. You can't fake me out. God says, you're not going to fake me out. I want you to do self-examination. And you're going to be uncomfortable in the process. It's not easy. It's difficult because the Christian life is difficult. And we're going to see next week why it is so difficult. So to do it in a, in a worthy manner is to be honest before God. Honest before each other. Is to be transparent. No, you can't fake out God. So what are those thoughts? Let's come to his table. If there's any known sin in your life, first of all, God says, you're my child, I told you what to do. Confess it. Okay, get it right. And if your sin has hurt somebody, go to them and ask for forgiveness and restore. Do what, you, what is necessary to get it right. Then come back and let's have communion. God's saying, I want my children to be real with this. I want them to be honest with one another, honest with me, honest with themselves. Because as we're, as we're doing this, and as we're doing this, these are just outward actions. As you're doing that, God's looking here. Wow. That didn't wake up nothing else. Let's pray. Father in heaven, that's what's so beautiful. We can come to the Lord's Supper. We come to our Lord's Supper, the King's Supper, to declare his death, to remember him, to proclaim it, the power of his death is our life. God is new life. It's a life that results in a changed life. We live differently now. And God, as we examine ourselves as your children, as dad, you tell us to, to examine our relationship with you and our relationship with each other. You tell us to be honest in that relationship. And when we find sin, is to simply confess it, to admit it, to agree with you that what we're doing is wrong. And we desire to turn from it and to change it and to do what's pleasing to you. And so, Father, that's, that's part of taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. God, thank you that we don't have to be perfect to take the Lord's Supper. All you ask us to do is be honest and real before you. Admitting our faults and our sins. And for that, dear God, we are forever thankful and grateful. Speak to our hearts, Lord God, as we partake of communion. Develop deeper in us a conviction of sin that is really sweet and beautiful because it results in Christ's life living. 
in the magnification of our Savior. It's his name we pray. Amen.